Welcome to HBW's Over the Counter podcast. I'm David Ridley and I'll be chatting with industry experts and insiders about the latest trends, issues and intelligence in consumer healthcare. In this episode, we catch up with Bayer Consumer Health's Daniela Foster. Daniela leads on the company's public affairs and sustainability work and so updates us on Bayer's progress towards its net zero goals and also its Nutrient Gap initiative, which aims to expand access to vitamins and minerals for 50 million people in underserved communities by 2030. Daniela explains the business model behind sustainability and how the company is expanding access to self-care products in other ways, for example via RX to OTC Switch. We also dig a bit deeper into thorny sustainability issues like greenwashing and offsetting, with Daniela offering advice to consumer health industry colleagues. Hi Daniela, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Hi David, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back. How have you been since last time we spoke? So far so good, just a different season, right? <laughs> That's right. So um, I, sp- I think we spoke in maybe the first year of the pandemic um, and you joined just before uh, the pandemic, I think, in your role. What's that been like, um, you know, leading Bayer Consumer Health's public affairs work in particular and sustainability as well? You're doing a lot we'll speak about later in such a, an interesting time. Well, first of all, you have a good memory. I did join uh, during the fall of 2019, so roughly six months before the pandemic. And later that same year, you know, we sort of already set up our two North Stars for consumer health sustainability. So one is on, on expanding access, so really focused on expanding access to everyday health for 100 million people and underserved communities annually by 2030. And then the second big North Star was around climate and being a climate neutral company by 2030. If I think about access, given that half of the world doesn't have access to basic health care, self-care and really what we do in the consumer health industry turns into, in many cases, the first and the last line of care. And when we took a step back and looked at what we do and kind of given our expertise and science-based heritage, this was really a place where we could make a clear impact on people's livelihoods And also bring this into our innovation and and think about the way that we're really designing for health. So when COVID started, we'd already been thinking about this. So I felt really lucky that we had already set up a strong sustainability strategy and that that was in place. So we were able to jump into action and we didn't need to, to change course. But what I think the pandemic did is our strategy was pandemic pressure tested, as I like to say, and it reinforced how important our goals were and still are. And I think it also motivated our teams even more because everyone has been touched by the pandemic in some way. We all collectively went through this experience and I think we all realized how critical self-care truly is. So of course, as a company that focuses on health and nutrition, we were able to directly help people impacted by the pandemic and many of whom, of course, are in underserved communities. So, you know, now as we fast forward through the last three years, and as I look back, while I certainly wouldn't want to relive aspects of the pandemic, I think it also helped to really pressure test our strategy, pressure test how we, and I think the rest of the world, thinks about access. And on our end, 
It's also helped us make faster decisions and have more of a, a safe to try mindset. And we had to do this because we needed to get programs into the world to help people immediately. We couldn't wait. And then, of course, we've certainly had some learnings. And one thing that sticks with me is how important it is to really meet people where they are. So we're now sort of fundamentally rethinking where and how aspects of healthcare are delivered. And when I say me, I, we, I don't just mean buyer, I mean kind of globally, this is a, a conversation top, a topic everywhere. And then uh, this also led us from a learnings perspective to explore channels. So thinking about different channels. So we started focusing a lot more on last mile delivery, particularly in places that are a health desert where there just isn't access. So if I think of a, a, a program where we have a partnership in, in Africa with a social enterprise called Reach 52, we work with them to train community health workers to understand community health needs, to provide health education and guidance, and then also to distribute um, self-care products really in these places where self-care is the last the last line of care, first and last line of care. So in general, I think the silver lining of COVID has been that more people really want to be the, the CEO of their own health. And I also think that's good for our industry, and I think we have solutions for helping to enable them do, to do that. Yeah, I think that's right. And like you say, um, having a strategy in place and a plan uh, in place before the pandemic um, helps, doesn't it? I think, um, like you say, mm -hmm. pressure test it, but also you can really get into it then because you can see the immediate value of it there, can't you? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So one of the um, one of the other initiatives um, that you've been involved in is the Nutrient Gap Initiative. Would you like to just say a bit about that, give a bit of background um, and what you are doing with that? Yes, yeah, so the Nutrient Gap Initiative, this ladder is up to sort of our overall sustainability commitment to expand access to self-care for 100 million people, specifically in underserved communities by 2030. And the Nutrient Gap Initiative focuses on access to essential nutrients as a foundation of good health. So one of the learnings here, we know that a third of people globally suffer from malnutrition. And when we set this program up, we said, look, we can help to remedy this. The program started a few years ago with a focus on really safety net supplementation and a, and a laser focus within that on prenatals. But this year we've expanded it to also focus on the most fundamental source of nutrients, food, namely fruits, vegetables, and grains. So this excites me because we're looking across that whole continuum of, of nutrition from food on through to safety net supplementation. And it excites me because when I think about, you know, Bayer and materially where we can have the biggest impact, um, I do think we're, we're probably the only company in the world that can act so holistically to improve access to nutrition, given our expertise um, on the consumer health side, but also our expertise in, in agriculture. So a good example of how we're bringing this all together is a pilot program we have in Indonesia. So we have an existing initiative called Better Life Farming, and the focus is really on improving livelihoods of smallholder farmers. And this is critical because they're the backbone of food security in rural communities. So typically the program would focus on providing farmers with tools and technologies to improve their farms. But we also started to think, what about the health of the farmer? 
if she's not healthy, and we know most smallholders are women, she can't tend to her farm, which impacts not only her own livelihood, but also her whole community. So we started infusing health and nutrition education along with sampling and selling some of our nutritional products as a part of the services offered at the center, and we're seeing some promising results. And this is interesting also because most healthcare companies, when we talk about health deserts, most healthcare companies, they don't have a kind of ready access to, to communities where self-care is the only option for care. So we're seeing this also as a strong path to create a societal impact. And there's also an incremental growth component as well when we think about the business. So we're also executing programs with, you know, that strictly consumer health focus as well. So if I think about our partnership with the global health nonprofit Vitamin Angels, we're looking to expand access to multiple micronutrient supplementation specifically for pregnant women and their babies in underserved communities. And this one I'm excited about because it includes a direct intervention, 180-day direct intervention with a supply of prenatal vitamins, also with prenatal nutrition education for both healthcare providers and moms-to-be, as well as looking at um, the long-term sustainability. So we're looking to help improve the standards of antenatal care. And then last year alone, we were able to expand access to 4 million pregnant women and their babies globally. And if I think about, um, yeah, just kind of impact and and where we can drive an impact immediately, that that's a great example. Yeah, that reminded me of um, when I was in South Africa for the GSCF conference. Um, I remember hearing about, but also seeing, you know, going around the townships where, as you say, self care is is literally the the only way that a lot of people can access healthcare products. Um, so that's really important, isn't it? It's quite different, I think, trying to put yourself in that position when you're, you know, in an affluent kind of Western um, point of view. Mm -hmm. Well, we also see, I, I will say, David, we also see um, uh, underserved communities, even in affluent developing markets. So that's the other piece we're looking at, right? How do we tackle that full continuum? That's right. Yeah, we'll come back to that in a minute, I think, um, with regards to maybe switch, OTC switch. But I was going to ask, when it comes to this um, this kind of work in expanding access to, to people that maybe haven't got um, the economic, financial and social resources uh, that they need to be able to look after themselves, how does that work in terms of a business model? Because ultimately, um, you know, you're still as a company, on the one hand, trying to sell these um, products as self-care um, products to you know people but also um, you have a you have business goals to meet and you still have to make sure that you're making money etc well how does that business model work in terms of of doing this really important social stuff as well mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i think one of the things that's critical for us and that i think is also you know, unique a bit for, for Bayer is that we don't have a set of separate sustainability goals. This is embedded into our business and embedded into our business strategy. And it's also part of the remuneration of our board of management. So it's really about 
how we can both be not only a force for good, but a force for growth. So we have a clear business strategy that includes underserved consumers as a key audience we're going to design for, innovate for, et cetera. And we don't think about this as a nice to have. It's central to how we think about future-proofing our business, and it's a key lever for growth. So when you think about it, half the world doesn't have access to basic healthcare. That's a lot of people who have spending power and research shows that they prioritize buying products from brands they trust because they'll know they'll be safe, they'll be effective. And that's, of course, exactly what we have to offer. So, you know, I just mentioned sort of the crux of our strategy, and it's it's having the right products that meets his or her medical needs and the right at the right price in the right place that's available where where and when they need it. So how do we do this? I think similar to um, our work to reach any consumer, we start with a deep understanding of what they want, where they are, and what they need. So first, when we think about this like overlay of underserved, which I was just talking about, where do we see the biggest need? Um, and there are impact markets where we see that. And then we've done deep uh, research to understand specifically with underserved consumers and specifically ethnographies to understand how they live, how they work, what's important to them. And we've also conducted a systematic review to understand their unmet medical needs and also to examine their their social determinants of health. So what are the challenges that they're uniquely having that are potentially exacerbating some of their health challenges? And how can that be improved through science-based solutions? So we've really built from there and are thinking about how we can develop offer, develop offerings that appeal to those audience, um, but also thinking about this in terms of incremental growth as well. So sometimes this can lead to an innovation, and we've you know baked sustainability into all aspects of our research and development process. And if I think you know, for example, even recently about Astapro is one example. We're also looking to create bespoke products that meet unmet consumer and medical needs. So Astapro, we made sure to launch it in Dollar General. Um, it works quickly in 30 minutes, which is a bit more unique vis-a-vis -vis some of the other things you see on the market. And it's steroid free. So this is a, a great example of an innovation where we intentionally also wanted to make sure we had an offering in a place like Dollar General to, to meet the needs of those communities. Um, and if I'm looking at, you know, even on the, the packaging side of things, we're also looking at how do we offer our products differently, right? So what are some of the needs? How do we look at different pricing models while we're still maintaining viable margins? And I think about that also in terms of Latin America, um, where we work very closely with mom and pop shops, and it's much more of a distributed model, right? Meeting people where they are in their backyards at um, an affordable price point. The other thing that comes to mind is thinking about ecosystems and going just beyond the products. So for instance, in the US, we recently launched a new heart health assessment tool in partnership with Huma. And what's special about this is it's super easy for anyone to find out their potential risk of getting cardiovascular disease, and it's free of charge. So if you think about most tools you may use, you need to know your cholesterol, your blood pressure, your glucose numbers. And let's face it, most of us are not going to know those off the top of our heads. And that also requires that you're regularly getting checkups, you you're well insured, et cetera. So our intention is that 
how do we make this easy for people? How do we make it accessible? One, this is free. And if people can find out what their risk is, this will also prompt them to see a healthcare provider to get the care that they need. So we're thinking about this, I would say, end to end across the whole value chain and continuum. And for me, that's what makes this really exciting. It's it's a part of our business. Yeah, what you're describing is, um, you know, is a is an approach where innovation um, and you know the kind of social responsibility stuff is is actually, um, you know, actually helps the the business grow anyway. You know, all these kind of priorities come together in in this kind of strategy, don't they? I think is mm-hmm. is where is where the market is going in general. Mm-hmm. It's the only way for sustainability to be sustainable, David. <laughs> exactly. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Over the Counter so far. Don't forget to follow Pharma Intelligence Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify and TuneIn. Also check out HBW Insight at hbw.pharmaintelligence.informa.com for all the latest health, beauty and wellness news and intelligence. Keep listening. This episode continues now. So talking about sustainability, uh, maybe we can talk a little bit more about Bayer's um, sustainability strategy and specifically how it's progressing on this um, you know, journey towards net zero that I think increasingly all companies, especially big companies, are, are pursuing. How is, how is that strategy progressing, would you say? So first, maybe, you know, let me back up and talk a little bit about the first important milestone, because there's sort of three pieces to this. So we're well on our way to becoming climate neutral in our operations by 2030. And if we look across all of Bayer, about a third of our production facilities now operate with renewable energy, and we've decreased our greenhouse gas emissions associated with our own operations by 19%. In terms of progressing towards net zero, I'm sure most companies would agree scope three and that work up and down the supply chain is one of the most challenging goals because it's where as a company you have the, the least control. At the same time, I think these are big systemic issues. And this is where I see a lot of potential for collective action, for partnering across supply chains to look at, all right, um, what's the interconnectedness between supply chains, especially in an industry like ours? I think collective action and working within the industry and with competitors becomes a, street, a key strategy here. And if I think also specifically about you know, our industry, this is where I am inspired by the progress that we're making collectively. So if I look at the Global Self-Care Federation, I co-chair the Environment Working Group, and collectively as an industry, we've launched the first ever charter for environmentally sustainable self-care as an industry. And this is, I think, one of the first times you'll find an industry proactively coming together to drive collective action. One of the pillars um, around this is, of course, on plastics and packaging. And then one of the other pillars of the charter is on managing our, you know, the carbon footprint of our sort of collective supply chains. So within this working group, there are a few key objectives. One is what's that 
kind of common criteria for supplier evaluation. Suppliers are asking this. They want it to be clear. They want it to be easy. And then two, really developing common guidance for them um, in terms of what, what to expect from a practices perspective. And then three, really guiding suppliers with best practices for measurement. So we hope to help standardize some of the data gathering around greenhouse gas emissions, for example. So these are just a few of the steps we're taking collectively to help impact the value chain. But I, I think that's critical and I see a lot of promise there. And that's one of the areas where I would encourage as we think about climate. Climate is a team sport. It is every company, every government's, um, every industry's sort of responsibility to think through the role that they play in this and then how we can drive collective action together. So that's a bit of how I think about it. And I also think we're, we're, we're making progress, still challenges in scope three, absolutely. But I do think that collective action piece becomes important there. Yeah, we've been following some of the the ways that companies have been working together, especially, like you say, through the GSCF, and hopefully we'll be speaking to the GSCF soon about the progress on the on that collective work you mentioned. Um, talking about the the kind of scope three emissions, there's also the consumer side, isn't there? So, um, you know, working out how you can help consumers um, get rid of like waste essentially, or or use products in more sustainable ways. Um, how do how do you see that progressing in terms of Bayer's um, work on this? I suppose thinking back also to the innovation stuff we were talking about with um, packaging and switch and that. Uh, what do you think are the key things coming up on in that in that kind of area? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a few pieces of this. So maybe on the um, on the the sustainability front. Right. This is one where I sort of go back to what I talked a bit about before in terms of thinking about this from the design perspective. Right. So really starting to build and design with sustainability in mind. And that's one of the things that's been most exciting for me to watch in terms of our of our evolution. So, for example, if I think about how we're reimagining some of our products, we have our dermatology brand, Bapampin. And this is a great example where we've lightweighted it. So we're using 80% less plastic and it's also a refillable model. So again, just a, a very you know, different model in terms of how we're thinking about the use of it, how we're thinking about delighting consumers, but also being more sustainable. So that's an area where I see we're going to see much more of that. We also, of course, have a commitment to be recyclable, reusable, or compostable for all of our packaging by 2030. So I gave you the Bapanthin example as one, but there is a lot more happening across that area globally. And then when I think about um, the other aspect of this, uh, and you mentioned RX to OTC switch, I think RX to OTC switch is an important strategy for how we plan to expand access. Um, so it kind of hits both ends, right? And when I think about transitioning a product over the counter, so from being, you know, a prescription to being accessible, that helps expand access to many treatments for everyone, but especially for those that really don't have insurance or who are underinsured. So, you know, first we they don't have to go to a doctor's office, which can be prohibitive because of cost, or even if you think about just being able to get time off off work from their jobs. Second, it's available when 
a consumer needs it. So it doesn't need to be when a pharmacy is open. And we know that when prescription drugs become available over the counter, it's also a societal benefit and it can save health systems billions of dollars. And we see this through the recent Global Self-Care Federation economic value study. So the economic value um, of self-care. And I, and I also think about this in terms specifically of our launch of Astapro in, in the U.S. In that way, we're really starting to bring this aspect of access into our strategy. And I mentioned before, right, We, the, while the product is broadly available at retailers, we created a SKU specifically for Dollar General so that it was at an, in the, available in the places where consumers are shopping for over-the-counter medicines at a price point that really works for their budget. So th- this is um, one I'm a big fan of. And then, of course, I'm also encouraged on the overall packaging front by the work that we're doing across the industry. So there's a lot of work happening across the industry through the Global Self-Care Federation to look at alternatives to um, the hardest plastics to convert. So that's exciting as well. And then sometimes there are simple yet really key pieces that help us to make things either more accessible. So for example, if I think about something as simple as a QR code in Latin America, um, you know, we were able to work specifically with regulators to have approval for usage of a QR code on PAC. And this is great because consumers can easily access the information on their phone. Um, as an added bonus, you can provide information around health education. It enables you to use less packaging in some cases. So again, to me, at the end of the day, this is all about having the right product at the right price point available in local stores um, and looking at how you do that more sustainably over time. And then, yeah, the the other kind of aspect of the consumer um, interaction with sustainability is is greenwashing, isn't it? I'm sure that you've been speaking about this and this is a, a concern of Bayer. Um, I'm just interested in how this specifically affects consumer healthcare companies because, you know, in relation to, say, the pharmaceutical, the wider pharmaceutical industry, um, they have a much closer contact with with uh, the public, don't they, through consumers and brands and advertising, etc. Um, you know, how, so just, we're talking about, you know, kind of overinflated or, or false sustainability claims, which is obviously not something that, that Bayer would be interested in doing, but it's also difficult to get this right. So how how is Bayer looking at this? What kind of, what kind of approaches do companies, consumer healthcare companies in particular, need to take in order to make sure they get this right? And what are the kind of challenges there? What are the, the dangers, if you like? Mm-hmm. Well, look, greenwashing is definitely a hot topic. And, you know, this is an issue that's fascinating because in many ways it's never quite black or or white. It's, it's complex. And I think it's become even more complex and with higher stakes over the last six months or so. So uh, a really good article I like on this topic that I would recommend, it's, it's called The Greenwashing Hydra. 
And it talks about the six types of greenwashing tactics that organizations can use. And I, I find it fascinating because we most often think of greenwashing in terms of green labeling, because that's what we're most familiar with. So green labeling, i.e. calling something green or sustainable, but perhaps that's actually misleading. But there are many other approaches and the hydro walks through the six, right? So it's things like green lighting, where a company may cast a light on a small green feature, but then you know draw attention away from other um, not so environmentally friendly practices, right? Or then there's green rinsing, where a company regularly changes its ESG targets before they are achieved. So I think it's it's a fascinating time right now because that spectrum of how we think about greenwashing has really broadened. And I also think it's critical for the consumer health industry to get it right. It's absolutely critical. We are an industry built on trust. And I think it's important, of course, for every industry to get it right, and particularly for an industry that's science-based to really, really get it right. So we're seeing more litigation. We're seeing more news about greenwashing today. And I think that that's partly due to a lack of clarity in what is and what is not greenwashing, especially from a legal perspective. And then in the absence of that, this leaves companies with few clear actions for making and substantiating green claims to avoid you know, greenwashing litigation. So when I look at the the landscape, you sort of asked, all right, what are some of the best practices around this? What do we need to be thinking about as an industry? And what do we look at, right? So first, it starts with materiality. Materiality, materiality, materiality. What is material to your business? And ensuring that you have transparency around that. So what's material to your business? What are the boundaries? What are the baselines? Where are you going? How are you working on your reductions? And, and really being clear on that is key. The second piece that's key is documenting your progress, being able to quantitatively say where you started, the progress you're making, and what you anticipate that looking like over time. And then the third area is openly communicating both your successes and your failures. There are, it's, this is a journey, it's a very long journey. And I think being open and transparent about that is critical. So these things, of course, they may not fully insulate the, a company completely from greenwashing litigation, but they're, but they're really essential. They're the essential fundamentals and the best practices to follow. And these, of course, are the best practices we follow at Bayer. So, for instance, I mean, we had really our first ESG Investor Day webinar where we opened up and shared exactly where we are, exactly where we have challenges, what our plans are. We, you know, candidly answered questions. So I think that that's those kinds of really open and transparent activities are going to become even more important going forward. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the the investor presentation. That was really interesting. It was nice to see all that detail, like you're saying. And it was there was a genuine sense of openness in um, in in getting into the into Bayer's progress and the challenges, like you say. And one of the things that I really liked was um, was this slide that showed um, how Bayer is using offsetting, but also how that's going to change over time. So offsetting is when you um, you know, you kind of cancel out some of your emissions by doing something positive somewhere else. Um, and there's a kind of controversial debate around net zero and, you know, how you can kind of balance things without maybe actually uh, taking as radical action as you might 
need to or want to. But I think that's really great, Mike. It shows, you know, that you that you're trying to reduce that over time towards the end of this this decade. And I think that, you know, for me, that seems to go against the grain of maybe um, maybe politically a lot of kind of net zero strategies that are maybe trying to buy time rather than than take action. I don't know if you you have a view on that or um, you know what you what you think about that aspect of Bayer's strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we think reducing our offset purchases is important, and we think it's important because as a company, we fundamentally believe that offsetting emissions is not a long term strategy for climate change mitigation. So the reason many companies, of course, need to purchase offsets is that they're using fossil fuels, generating emissions, looking for options to reduce their carbon footprint to zero. And I get that. Yet we also know such an approach really doesn't help us achieve the Paris Accord and mitigate the pace of climate change. So it may slow down the pace of climate change. But it does not stop more emissions from building in the atmosphere. So, you know, as a result, when we take a step back and look at this, Bayer, from the Bayer perspective, we're committed to reducing the number of offsets we purchase and also accelerating Bayer to be a truly net zero emissions business. Now, this means we needed to transform the way we think about even our innovation pipeline, right? Which is, again, what really excites me. So one of the ways we're doing this is exactly that. What does this mean for the future of the way that we think about our business and our innovation pipeline? And I talked earlier, I mean, even just from the consumer health perspective, how we're reimagining even our products like Bapanthin, it's now lightweighted, 80% less plastic. And we're doing the same the same thing even in our agricultural work. If I think about um, even Covercrest, where we're a majority shareholder, uh, it's a great way to uh, look at cover crops and also to look at the benefits of how do you keep soil where it belongs and what is kind of the market around that um, and and thinking about how you transform agriculture in that way. So I would say end to end, it um, these are not the easy things to do, but they do cause a company to start to think about the entire future of your business and that innovation pipeline. And you then have to invest to start to drive that, which transforms the whole business. So these are the things that excite me. They're not easy, of course, um, but they're they're really exciting when you think about the future. Also, I think it's it's good when you have, you know, the biggest companies doing it properly, isn't it? Um, you're setting an example um, and then you're encouraging other companies to follow suit, especially when you're also working together across particular aspects of sustainability. Mm-hmm. And I, I firmly believe everyone needs to work together. Um, so on that positive note, I think um, we'll stop there. I really appreciate um, all the detail that you've gone into on um, on the sustainability and, and, and the social work that Bay is doing. And it's really nice to catch up with you again. Always great to connect with you, David. Thanks so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Over the Counter. Listen out for more episodes every two weeks and check out the further reading section of the article published on hbw.farmerintelligence.informer.com for related news and intelligence. 
And don't forget to follow, share and comment on Farmer Intelligence Podcasts on the platform of your choice. See you next time.